Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. An eye in the sky, we talk with Victoria Smith, the Deputy State Entomologist, about the importance of the annual aerial survey of the state's forests. And Amy Donoghue becomes the Coast Guard Academy's first provost. But what does that mean? Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Connecticut has a lot of wooded areas and every year the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station and the U.S. Forest Service undertake an aerial survey to see what's happening and what's changing in our environment. I caught up with Victoria Smith, the state's deputy entomologist, who is one of the team who undertakes the survey to find out more and what they found so far this year. Victoria, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So talk to us about this thing that you and the Agricultural Station have been doing for a long time. It's an annual sort of survey, but it's an aerial survey. Just tell us why you do it. We do this aerial survey under an agreement with the U.S. Forest Service. We basically fly the entire state looking at all the forested lands. We try to cover the entire state once a year. Some areas we cover more than once because there are different uh, damage-causing agents or different pests that show up at different times of year. But uh, we survey roughly almost 2 million acres of the forested land in the state every year from the air in a single engine aircraft. We record the damage that we see from the air and also report that to the Forest Service and to our colleagues at DEEP. We're going to get into the the nitty gritty of that in just a moment. Of course, Mm -hmm. COVID stopped everything last year and it stopped this as well, didn't it? Explain to us why. Yes, it did. We did not fly last year due to COVID restrictions. Uh, Like I said, we're in a single engine aircraft, very small. You're quite literally shoulder to shoulder with the pilot and there's no way to get six feet of distance between you. And we just felt that it was not worth the risk to everybody due to the disease to undertake the survey. We were very disappointed to not do this because we get some very good data, but we just felt that it was too much of a risk. So let's get into the the nuts and bolts of the situation here. So you go up, you do this survey, just talk to us. How long does the survey sort of generally take? Because you've just explained this like a couple of million acres to cover and it's only a small aircraft. So generally, how long does it take to do the survey? We start in in early summer. And weather permitting, we will fly anywhere from five to six hours a day on a grid pattern. Year before last, we covered the entire state in about 45 hours of flying time. Then following that, we do have to do some processing of the data. But uh, again, flying time was about 45 hours in 2019. So when you say about the data, I mean, what are you looking for? Explain to us, because data to probably people listening can mean many things. Let me just give you a little bit of idea of how 
how we collect the data. We have tablet computers with real-time GPS data on them. So basically, as we're flying overhead, the area that we're flying over also appears as a map on our tablet computers. We simply circle the areas that are damaged that we see from the air and then label those as to what trees are damaged and what the damage causing agent is. So we get an idea as to what trees are damaged, what's causing the damage, and how much damage there is. So it's, it's quite a sophisticated system, but it works very well. When we get back on the ground, we then upload those data into a cloud-based database that's basically a nationwide database. And the Forest Service keeps that data safe for us uh, there in their, in their cloud-based system. So that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And yes, we can recognize different tree species species from the air and we can recognize different damage causing agents. With a little bit of practice, you can tell one from the other from the air. So give us an example when you say it's like damage. I mean, are we talking um, natural, naturally occurring damage? I mean, just, just give us an idea of, of what that means. We can record damage from gypsy moth from the air. We can record mortality due to emerald ash borer. We can record damage from brush fires or the occasional forest fire. We also record logging incidents. And uh, once or twice we've recorded landslides. Those are a little bit rare in Connecticut, but we can record them. We were a little bit disappointed last year in that we were, since we were not flying, we were unable to record the damage from Tropical Storm Issa. Eos. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but about 10 days after Issa Eos, there was a tornado outbreak. We were unable to record that damage from the air as well because we weren't flying. But those are things that that we can uh, record from the air. You've been flying some missions already. And just to sort of like follow up on that, I mean, are you sort of seeing though still some of the damage from there, even though you weren't, be able, you weren't able to see it, as you say, sort of firsthand fairly shortly after the event? Because I'm, I'm guessing there's still damage out there. There is still some damage out there. And uh, for that, we have to rely a little bit on historical damage. In other words, was that tree dead two years ago? And we do have that, that information available on our tablet computers. This year, what we are recording is the gypsy moth outbreak in the northwest corner of the state in Litchfield County. That's been very severe. I also want to just point out here too, that concerning gypsy moth, my staff does an egg mass survey of the gypsy moth every winter. In other words, we go out on a seven-mile grid pattern across the entire state and simply count how many gypsy moth egg masses we see. Last winter, we found a tremendous number of gypsy moth egg masses near the Sharon area in the northwest corner. And this year, we are recording a tremendous amount of gypsy moth damage. So uh, that's one thing that we are looking at this year. Talk to us a little bit more about that, because I spoke to another scientist from the Connecticut Agriculture experiment station fairly recently about this gypsy moth damage in the northwest and it was my understanding that anywhere between 25 to 30,000 acres have been defoliated. Is that correct? Yes, we've got a preliminary estimate. The defoliated area is closer to 40 to 45,000 acres defoliated. Now, keep in mind that most trees can withstand one year of defoliation and next year they'll come back just fine. However, we are concerned that if these trees are defoliated more than one year successively, there will be some 
tree death, some tree mortality in that area. We did see a tremendous amount of tree death in the eastern part of the state due to successive years of heavy gypsy moth defoliation and drought stress. So we're hoping that that does not happen in uh, the northwest corner. Just to put a bit of an idea of the amount of damage, again, it was my understanding from speaking to the Agricultural Experiment Station that the eastern Connecticut damage was over a million acres. Is that right? That's true. We did record over a million acres uh, a couple of years ago, damage and mortality due to gypsy moth in the eastern part of the state. It sounds a big figure and it is a big figure, but as you've stated, it is, you know, we're not the biggest of the states here in, in the United States, but we do have a lot of trees. I mean, does that have a, a major impact on our environment when we have those sort of situations occur? It can. If you don't have a good tree canopy, the ground gets very hot. It gets less able to absorb the rainwater that you have. It also will allow the establishment of invasive species that need much more sunlight. Having a lot of defoliation in successive years, especially, can have very serious effects on the general forest health and on the composition of the forest. Different kind of trees uh, are better able to establish. It just there's many changes that can come about from the successive years of defoliation. I know there's many unanswered questions and we rely obviously on the amazing science that all of you bring and use to help us here in the state of Connecticut. Just a quick question about the gypsy moth and the situation in the northwest part of the state. Do we know why it suddenly seems to almost jump to another part of the state? Because, you know, we were talking about eastern Connecticut got hit hard and now suddenly the northwest potentially could be hit reasonably hard. That is the million dollar question. Why did it all of a sudden show up there in the northwest where we haven't seen gypsy moth for probably 30 or 35 years? That's a question that we don't have an answer for. And there's also a large gypsy moth populations in the western part of Massachusetts and the Berkshires, tailing all the way up into the Vermont forests, and also large populations in the eastern New York forests. So that is really a good question as to why we're getting so much right there. And I just don't have an answer for you. A final question to you, and obviously, thank you ever so much, you know, for your interview and obviously the information that you bring to us about this incredible work that, that you all do. You know, are people able to access this information at all? Because you say it's the Forestry Service. I mean, because it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. Yes, I believe that the Forest Service does have a public portal where you can access the information from all across the country. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm glad to have the opportunity. Patients fighting cancer use more blood than patients fighting any other disease, but there simply aren't enough people donating regularly to meet the need. That's why the American Red Cross and the American Cancer Society have partnered to encourage people across the country to give blood to give time. Many cancer patients, especially those undergoing chemotherapy, may need blood during their treatment. Cancer takes so much, but you can help by donating blood or platelets. Visit GiveBloodToGiveTime.org to give now. The U.S. Coast Guard Academy is one of the leading military education establishments in the country, and now it's appointed its very first provost in Amy Donahue, a former professor from UConn. So what does the new provost role involve? I spoke with Amy to find out about this unique role she now has. Amy, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. First of all, of course, congratulations on becoming the first provost of the Coast Guard Academy. Thank you so much. I'm very excited about it. Tell us, what does it mean? What is this role? 
So this is a new role for the Coast Guard Academy. They've traditionally had an academic dean as the service academies all traditionally have had. But the Coast Guard has an interest in elevating the role to be more strategic. So the provost is a little bit more now aligned with what other higher education institutions often have as a chief academic administrator and a a leader of the academic enterprise, a leader of all of the academic functions and programs and scholarly activities of the academy, but also more broadly in service to the Coast Guard itself. You've had a little bit of time to get your feet under the door, as it were. Still clearly a, a lot to still learn. It's a, it's a huge organization. What's like come up so far for you that's been of interest? Yeah, that's, that's right, Brian. I, I, I still haven't started, so I, I start uh, soon in about 10 days uh, officially. But I have had the opportunity to visit on a few really terrific occasions, too. So I was there for commencement when President Biden uh, visited, spoke, and and uh, was there for the cadet commissioning. Uh, and I was also there on day one, which is the day when the new swabs, they're not even cadets, show up yet. And both of these were really, really great opportunities because, you know, these big ceremonial occasions are the moments when you see an institution's traditions expressed and you can learn a lot. Um, and so I, I've had a nice opportunity to kind of observe how passionate the, all of the members of the Coast Guard and of the Academy are about really developing cadets. Um, their term of art is to develop leaders of character, and you can really see those values come out loud and clear in those, in those opportunities. So it's really been great to witness the, the Academy living their values in obvious ways. So the role of provost, I mean, if you had to encapsulate it, what would you say its, its main job is, is sort of going to be? The provost is the chief academic officer. And the, the academy has multiple dimensions. They're obviously developing future officers for the Coast Guard. And so that involves a lot of military training, physical training, but it, it also graduates cadets with Bachelor of Science degrees. And so the, this is a full four-year educational institution that it's accredited, it's very well-ranked. And, and so all of the educational teaching scholarly activities of the academy, including functions like the registrar and the library, all of that falls within the purview of the provost. The other thing, of course, the Coast Guard Academy is continually looking to do is to diversify with obviously the students that come into the academy, not just gender, but also race. Is that going to be like part of your remit is to make sure that it is attracting a good, diverse group of people? Absolutely attracting them and retaining them and graduating them, not just for the academy's own interests, because that enlivens the academic enterprise so much, but for the service, which has an explicit concern with having a diverse, inclusive environment. Diversity is a really powerful force multiplier if you're dealing with a complex multi-mission environment, which is what the Coast Guard does. And so diversity is important to the academy because of its centrality to social justice and because of its centrality to capability. So it is right top of mind for the academy, like it is at all higher education institutions. And the academy, as I understand it, now has 
this year recruited the most diverse cadre of cadets it ever has. The incoming students are more diverse than ever in history, and not just diverse in the traditionally underrepresented groups, but also diverse internationally. You come, of course, at this job with a huge amount of incredible backgrounds. We're going to touch upon a couple of those, most notably your last job before, obviously, you transition across to the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, professor and vice provost for academic operations at the University of Connecticut. Obviously, you know, that's going to bring a lot of skills and knowledge and experience from that job into the the one that you now take on. Yes, I think it will indeed. It's sort of I've had sort of a crazy career path, and it seems like maybe looking forward, I never would have thought it as a coherent path towards anything, but it seems like my particular path adds up to something that is suitable and helpful to the Coast Guard Academy's mission. Certainly, being a vice provost gave me a lot of insight into all the challenges of of leading any large, complex organization, but also of the, the challenges a major public research university faces and all of higher education faces. So I I think the opportunity to be in that role for a while really did give me a strong education about what academic institutions face and, and what their missions are, how those might change, and all of the unexpected stuff that comes up in the effort to satisfy those those missions. So I I do indeed think it will help me. It's certainly the case that already wandering the halls a little bit at the academy, I can spot a lot of very similar kinds of interests and strengths and challenges. It looks very familiar. The other thing I want to bring up as well, of course, is you served as an army officer as well previously. The Coast Guard, of course, is a branch of the military and, you know, the military and so like private education, I'm guessing, do have some similarities, but also I'm guessing they have a lot of differences as well. So really, you come at this not only with, as we said, the Yukon side of it, but also a knowledge of the military as well. Yeah, I think it it is certainly helpful. Uh, And as you said, there's some similarities. There are also some differences between the Coast Guard and the Army, but the military sensibility is very familiar, the missions, the approaches, the traditions, and in general, kind of the the space uh, in which we develop officers is very familiar. And the other dimension of that is my particular area of expertise is in and around emergency response and management, homeland security, those fields I've done a lot of work in. So it's really this combination of my appreciation for the military and its mission and that particular substantive domain, which surprisingly actually came together as a a useful professional background for this role. As you step into the role and continue to grow into it, as we said, you're at the very beginning of this, you know, have you set yourself some targets of things that you want to try and achieve in maybe the first, you know, year or first couple of years? Yes, it's true. I'm still doing a lot of learning. I'm still trying to, as I get aboard, kind of recognize where the superintendent's priorities lie. But some of these things are quite obvious. I mean, for all of us, this question of coming out of COVID and moving forward from COVID in a in a healthy, productive way. So people talk a lot about going back to normal. I think the Academy is leaning forward and thinking about what the future should look like based on what our experience has been, but also what sorts of things need to be restored. And it'll take a bit of time, I think, to to adjust 
So that that's going to consume a lot of attention immediately. The academy hiring a provost is new for them and new for the Coast Guard. So defining that role and, and shaping that, and, and it's actually the first step in what they envision to be a reorganization of the academic enterprise. So there'll be quite a bit of work over the next year, I think, in, in rationalizing that a bit, maturing it. It's a great faculty and, and a great, strong, robust set of departments. There's a lot to work from, but it, I think they have some a vision for how that can operate better, more coherently and, and more productively. And so there's a lot of work there. And beyond that, you know, I still I still have to understand what the Coast Guard and, and the superintendent are really interested in. I was going to say, I just want to quickly bring up a question about Rear Admiral uh, Bill Kelly, who is the Academy superintendent. I mean, he's still reasonably new himself there. I mean, he's been there for a few years. And of course, that, that changes every so often. What sort of conversations have you have you had with him so far that you're able to share with us? Yeah, that's right. That's sort of an interesting phenomenon that's different from other educational institutions. The tour of duty is usually about four years for uh, for a leader. So I will, in some sense, outlive him. But he does. He's about halfway through his tenure. Obviously, a, a very well regarded leader in the Coast Guard, and and very evidently highly regarded at the academy. It's it's uh, one of the reasons why I felt confident in stepping into this role and out of Yukon is because of the strength of his character and leadership and how well-respected he is. And we've had a couple of initial conversations. I'm starting to get a sense of how he sees this relationship working. It's very analogous to a, what you would see at, a, as a president-provost relationship at another organization, but it does have unique characteristics. And he has certainly been very welcoming and, and starting to take steps to articulate this relationship to the Coast Guard. But I think really sort of in the coming weeks, I'll really start to have an opportunity to engage that relationship a lot more closely. Well, Amy Donahue, it's great talking to you. Thank you for giving us an update and congratulations once again, obviously, on being selected and becoming the first provost of the Coast Guard Academy. We look forward to having many more conversations with you in the future. Thanks for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thanks, Brian. It's been great. I really appreciate the conversation. Got stumps? Then call Green Valley Tree LLC let us remove them for you. Our stump grinder is quick and efficient, leaving your property stump-free in no time. Our stump grinding services are available for homeowners, contractors, and municipalities alike. Call us for a quote at 860-234-4041. Find out about our other services at our website, greenvalleytreeworks.com. We're family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. Senator Richard Blumenthal recently visited Dodd Stadium, home to the Norwich Sea Unicorns minor league team, to pitch for a congressional bill he's co-sponsoring that would provide COVID-19 relief grants to minor league baseball teams for the lost 2020 season. Blumenthal said minor league teams have been hit the hardest of all. Major League Baseball profits from TV rights and other sources of revenue that minor league baseball simply doesn't have. This ballpark depends on selling tickets and concessions like hot dogs and soda. And if it's not open, there's no revenue. 
Outgoing general manager of the Sea Unicorns, Dave Skirmerhorn, said the team hasn't been able to open its doors to fans for almost 20 months, and that's been hard on everyone. Uh, it was just over a year and a half, and, and for our business to not be able to bring in ev any revenue for a year and a half obviously took its toll. So we're, we're very appreciative of, of this uh, legislation and, and hope that it'll be able to help not only the Norwich Sea Unicorns, but baseball teams around the country that were hit so hard by the pandemic. Blumenthal said his bill, which has bipartisan support, is called the Saving Minor Baseball Act and would provide $550 million in relief to teams who were forced to shut down for the 2020 season and would be administered by the Small Business Administration. Already the bill has sponsorship in the U.S. Senate and U.S. House of Representatives. The Connecticut Department of Transportation has announced that effective Monday, July 26, additional train services will be added to the CT Rail Hartford Line and Shoreline East services. Seven round trips that were eliminated in March 2020 will be returned to the Hartford Line schedule and seven additional trains will be added to the Shoreline East schedule. Four Shoreline East trains will be extended from Old Saybrook to New London to allow for more travel options. On July 19th, Amtrak will add additional service on the Northeast Corridor between Boston and New York. And also on July 19th, the Vermonter, which was suspended in March 2020, will resume daily operations to St Albans, Vermont. Expanding train service is an important step for public transportation, not only for our state, but also for our region and our country. It means we are moving forward in the right direction, said CTDOT Commissioner Joseph Giulietti. We can once again safely and responsibly connect in person with our friends and families who we have missed. In the day this week, New London trial attorney Ralph Monaco, known as a passionate advocate for his clients and for civic work outside the courtroom, died recently at his home in Essex. He was 54. Monaco was a partner with the New London law firm Conway, Londrigan, Sheenan and Monaco and past president of the Connecticut Bar Association, the second youngest lawyer to hold that position. He often made a lasting impression on his clients, said friend and colleague Michael Sheehan. The thing that has always stuck out to me the most was the level of care and concern he always had for his clients, Sheehan said. As lawyers, we have an ethical obligation to represent our clients vigorously. Ralph set the bar at a new level. He was a friendly and unique guy who really gave lawyers a good reputation. Monaco is survived by his wife Dina and daughters Abby and Anna. Monaco joined the new London law firm fresh out of law school in 1993. Sheehan said it had been a tough few days for everyone at the firm. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, some Norwich city-owned homes are about to get a makeover with hopes of stimulating new opportunities. Out of the total $14.4 million in American Rescue Plan funding, Norwich has for this year $1.2 million of its proposed for improving housing in the city, with part of it going towards Habitat for Humanity efforts and part going to a house rehabilitation programme for the city. Both programmes help families who couldn't otherwise afford a home and provides revenue for the city with a $994,260 return on investment on these projects expected in 30 years. Norwich City Manager John Salamone said during his presentation on the ARP funds recently that $840,000 from this section would be for a house rehabilitation programme in the city. The intention of the programme is to take homes the city receives be it through back taxes or abandonment, and to rehabilitate them. Salomon noted that normally the city would just sell or auction the properties off. 
In the Middletown press this week, as the state transferred men out of Northern Correctional Institution this spring in preparation for the Supermax prison's closure, Richard Rice, a 52-year-old man incarcerated at a nearby facility, noticed some changes at the B unit, where he has a job cleaning the hallways and empty cells. The cell modifications at McDougall Walker Correctional Institution, where Rice is currently serving time on an assault conviction, reminded him of the ones at Northam, where he was locked up off and on for more than nine years, beginning in 1998. He's been transferred back and forth to the prison during a slew of sentences he's served since 1985. Rice said several cells at McDougall Walker have special beds in them now to hold people in four-point restraints, and a few metal doors have been changed so prisoners can't throw their feces or urine out of the slot. DOC Commissioner Angel Kiros acknowledged in a recent interview that prison staff have used in-cell shackling at McDougall Walker after men were transferred there from Northern, where they'd been completing administrative segregation or security risk group programming. And in the Chronicle this week, the town of Chaplin now has its own poet laureate. Adelaide Northrop was named to the honorary position recently. The position was established as part of the town's plans for its upcoming bicentennial celebration in 2022. Northrop has lived in the town with her family since 1965. Adele Swartz, the chairperson of the selection committee, said Northrop has been actively involved in the community since her arrival to town. She is also a published poet. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 